It's a Thursday edition of Locked On Heat on today's show. Joel Embiid is doubtful to play in Game 3 of Heat vs. Sixers. What does this mean for Hassan Whiteside's chances of getting on the court more? Brian Taporg joins the show to discuss what adjustments the Sixers can make. And later, we kick around some Kawhi Leonard trade ideas. Thank you for listening, for subscribing. Now let's get to the show. You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. My name is Wes Goldberg. I'm a credentialed writer covering the NBA for the Step Back, and I write for the Miami Heat's hip-hop magazine. You can find me on Twitter at WC Goldberg. I'm David Romillo, credentialed NBA writer who's covered the Heat for SB Nation and allyoucaneat.com. I cover the league at large for Fansided, and you can follow me and my writing on Twitter at DRomel13. Hassan Whiteside has played a total of 28 minutes combined in the first two games of the series, and he has a negative net rating of 21.7 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor. Is this a bad matchup, or do you think that this is a sign that the Heat will try to move Whiteside during the offseason, given just how little he's played and just how ineffective he's been? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. I know that might seem like a bit of a cop-out, but the reality is that we're starting to see almost every matchup become a bad matchup for a guy like Whiteside. I know that we'll talk about some other players that might be in that same kind of comparable room for growth um, section of, of the NBA center position, but the reality is that Whiteside's game just no longer fits in today's league. And I know from his perspective, he wants to go back to that old uh, you know, style of play where you just dump it into the low post, watch him work, watch him work and, and kill the clock. But that's just not how the league works. And, and Miami's already slow enough in pace and, and puts up shots as, as, you know, slowly as they do. Mm-hmm. They can't slow things down even more so by going to white side constantly. And that kills a big part of what makes them most effective. Their three point shooting when they can shoot threes, when they do shoot threes at a high level. That makes Miami much more dangerous. Changing that offense to fit Whiteside rather than having Whiteside adjust just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Given the rest of the personnel, right? So, I mean, that's a good point. Maybe maybe Whiteside fits better in, a, in another situation where the other players on the team do kind of you know mesh with his skill set a little bit better because you look at a guy like Goran Dragic who likes to get up and down, a guy like Kelly Olenek who thrives in that triple threat position and and kind of running that that dribble handoff kind of offense and who is in today's game probably better as a five than a four. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a guy like Justice Winslow, who is, a, you know, likely part of the future of this team, who's basically a non-shooter at this point, can't really be on the floor with another non-shooter or too many of them at least. Um, yeah, I just don't, I don't know that Whiteside is... Where Whiteside was what they needed, you know, three years ago, they needed more rim protection, they needed more rebounding, they needed those things, and that's why Whiteside got playing time when he did was because they needed somebody with a skill set. Now they've kind of moved past that, and I don't, I don't even know that that's necessarily an indictment on Hassan Whiteside. It's just sort of where this team is at. But at the same time, I do think it's a little bit of the matchup uh, as well. Like Whiteside should be taking advantage of the Irsan Ilyasova matchup a little. Like he should win that like Irsan Ilyasova got released by the Hawks who were actively trying to lose games Mm -hmm. um and he's been a journeyman in his entire career he's not necessarily the guy who comes to mind when you think of a guy who can exploit a playoff matchup but I look at somebody like Jonas Valanciunas who's you know had his own battles with Whiteside in the past but he's having a really nice series uh for Toronto against against Washington 
And he's similar to Whiteside in a traditional sort of plotting big who can't really get out and defend on the perimeter and kind of has some of those same limitations. And and those limitations have been something Toronto's been dealing with as well throughout Valanciunas' career there. Uh, but he's having a nice series against Washington. I think Whiteside could have a similar series had Miami been playing the Wizards, you know, in the first round. So I, I don't know. I, I just I don't know because okay, even you're not sure of that. Yeah, no, because honestly, I, I've even seen that Washington seems, you know, obviously they're they're already down two games to Toronto. Um, changes will probably come to our divisional rival, and one of the changes that a lot of people are talking about is trading Marcin Gortat, who just doesn't have a role anymore in today's league. He's no longer as athletic as he once mm-hmm. was. And he's not really much of a defender. Um, and as far as Valens Yunus is concerned, he's doing things that I don't think Whiteside's capable of. Like I saw him engage in a couple of fake dribble handoffs, Olenek style. And that's maybe that's an evolution of his game. But I think he's still younger. He's much quicker, something I've pointed out before on the show. And I just don't think Whiteside's capable of making the leap. I'm trying to think. So whereas Valens is is evolving he's young and he's developing Whiteside's basically plateaued as well. I, I, I think so I'm trying to think around the league I agree who might be a comp to, to Whiteside at this point and there aren't many like even guys that don't have a perimeter based game like say Ennis Cantor is you know not a much of a defender where Whiteside is but he's great around the low post and he's a much more active rebounder than Whiteside will ever be I mean who else you know who else is a yeah. I mean you look at a guy like look at a guy like Rudy Gobert and and DeAndre Jordan but those guys, DeAndre Jordan, you know, has improved his defense along the perimeter. He's given real effort in that, which consistent effort, which you can't say for Whiteside, and is an actual lob threat where where Whiteside kind of looks the part, but he doesn't necessarily play the part. Um, and then Rudy Gobert, of course, has increased his his the quality of his defense astronomically. He's probably going to win Defensive Player of the Year despite only playing fifty something games this season. So. Um, yeah, Whiteside has gotten worse, if anything. I think he's lost some athleticism with those lower body injuries. He doesn't have the hands yes. he once did with all those hand injuries that he's gotten. Um, and I think for the, all these reasons, it's going to be it's going to be hard Impossible. for Miami to move him. I mean, it, it it it's I think there might be some takers. There are some teams in the league that are so bad at protecting the rim and so bad at rebounding that a guy like Whiteside could be a quick fix for that defense. And if you're maybe I don't know if you're a rebuilding team. It doesn't hurt to take on that contract and kind of let it go for a little bit if you're just trying to shore up that defense a little bit more and not and not be actively in the bottom five of the league, right? I think Whiteside can take your defense from really bad to average. I think he can do that. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing um, that you want to cover him up close in person in Sacramento. That's what I'm hearing of this. It makes sense. It makes sense. I think Sacramento makes sense for him. Uh, would you trade? Yes. If you're... Okay. <laughs> I mean, who? Garrett Temple and a first round pick for Hassan Whiteside? I was, I was going to say Garrett Temple. Um, yes. Costa Kufos yes. and Justin Jackson. Yes. I think Sacramento would do it too. Really? Wow. Get yeah. on the phone. Who, who's Sacramento? Uh, Vladi. Get Vladi on the phone right away. I think they would. I think Does they would. Does Vladi actually um, make personal decisions or is that somebody else in house? Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes it's the concession. Sometimes. Who knows? It's sometimes it's a parking attendant. Who knows? They ask me when I'm there. Somebody's like, who, who do you think we should trade for? I'm like, Absolutely, like, yeah. Do it. I'm just kidding. That doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I don't need to start rumors. Um, all right. So we're going to talk with uh, Brian Taporek of, about the Sixers' perspective on the series uh, next. But before we go on, just some housekeeping notes really quick. We started doing a Patreon-only mailbag last month. We want to make that a regular thing. So if you're part of our Patreon platform at patreon.com slash lockdownheat, uh, you can go into the message center and message us a question, and we'll answer as many as we can 
on next Monday's mailbag. So next Monday's mailbag, again, will be a Patreon-only mailbag, even though if you are not a Patreon per- person, you can you still have time then to do that and send us mailbag questions. Also, we recently ran a campaign yes. uh, to get 100 ratings on iTunes, and we got there. Thanks to everyone who left a rating and even better, a review. It really does help a bunch as it raises our rankings on the iTunes charts, helps people discover, find the show, um, and so we really do appreciate it. Uh, now uh, we'll be back with Brian after this quick break. The playoffs are here, and just like the Miami Heat, it's time to step up your game. If you run a company and you're unhappy with the results from traditional advertising online or in print, make a big-time adjustment by advertising with us here on Locked on Heat. We've already got national brands advertising on the show, but it's also a great opportunity for South Florida businesses to connect with local Heat fans. You've heard about the studies already, how podcast listeners are 65% more likely to engage with advertisers, and how the number of people listening to podcasts continue to grow every year, heck, every month. Be ahead of the curve and start advertising on a podcast with us here at Locked on Heat. You have nothing to lose by reaching out, and our rates are reasonable, and they're based on the number of listens, so it's an efficient use of your time and your money. For more information on Next Steps, email us at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. That's LockedOnHeat at gmail.com, and we could be talking about your company right here on the show. We are joined now by Brian Tapore, a contributor to B-Ball Breakdown and fan-sided and the co-host of the NBA pod to talk about how the 76ers have looked so far in their series against the Heat. But before we get to that, Brian, I just want to know, who do you hate more, Goran Dragic for his layup at the end of Game 2 or Justice Winslow for calling Ben Simmons a BHN? <laughs> I'm not really salty about the Goran Dragic thing. I don't know why. Like, I know NBA players have that unwritten code that you're not supposed to do it. But, like, whatever. I, I don't really care. I, I hate Whiteside the most still. Oh, wow. Oh, that's 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 uh, you're fit right into this podcast because we're, yep. we're probably his most uh, vocal critics here. Uh, <laughs> uh, fans are concerned. But I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people complain about the Goron thing. And it actually looked like as time was winding down that he was going to get fouled by somebody. So I think he was just trying to elude that foul and, and just, you know, lay up a, a, meaning, a meaningless shot there. But Philadelphia fans have taken it you know, very severely. They, they, they don't like the move at all. They think it's, a, I guess, a cheap shot or something. Yeah, I mean, maybe those people had money on the game because I thought I yeah. saw that he like swung the under to the over. Yes. So maybe they're just salty that's about the that. Only, that's the only part of this that I understand. Look, if you're gambling on the game, but also if you're gambling on the game, like like David said, they're probably going to foul him there. So you can, if they foul him there, the chance – Dragic is a pretty good free throw shooter. He hits – I don't know what the the line was, if it was a one or a, one or two points away um from swinging the over under or whatever it was but he probably hits at least one of those free throws and that could have swung the line anyway so you can't really blame Dragic for any of this um but we don't need to talk about that a whole lot but I I do want to talk about the Heat's defense on Ben Simmons which is you know Simmons has put a good line together in in both uh of the first two games averaging an almost triple double uh but the Heat did seem to pressure him and and not necessarily stop Ben Simmons's production, but sort of stop the production of the offense a little bit. Did you notice that the Heat? I mean, you watch a lot of the Sixers. Did you see what that what the Heat were doing was much different than how other teams have approached guarding Ben Simmons this season? Yeah, it's a good question and a good observation because it seemed like the first game they were playing off of him more and doing like the dare him to shoot thing, which doesn't really work that well because yes, he's not going to take an open three pointer. 
but you give a 6'10 guy that kind of vision, those passing lanes, then he's probably going to pick you apart more often than not. It also allows him to get a full head of steam when he's, you know, if he decides to drive to the basket, he's going to have three or four steps on you before you can really get into a stance. So, yeah, I noticed it seemed like they were playing much more up on him in game two. Um, And just in general, I mean, I thought the Heat were just much more physical throughout the team. Like uh, James Johnson, Josh Richardson, Justice Winslow, I thought they brought the intensity that you would expect from a team down 1-0. Um, and I think, you know, I, I would expect the Sixers are going to respond to that in game three. Uh, you know, I, I know the storyline coming into the series was, yeah, you've got J.J. Redick and Amir Johnson and Bellinelli, Eliasova. They all have playoff experience. But, you know, this is Ben Simmons' first playoffs. This is Darius Sarge's first playoffs. This is Robert Covington's first playoffs. So it seemed like, uh, the Sixers just kind of expected things to go the same way in game two, especially they got off to a pretty good start, all things considered, and then just completely fell in the tank in that second quarter. So I think the physicality for Miami threw them off a little bit and they were too willing to settle. Uh, I would expect heading into game three that Brett Brown stresses that aspect of the game and tells them, you know, if the shots aren't falling, Let's try to work our way toward the basket a little bit more. Let's not settle for 35 threes that are mostly off balance. That's a, you brought up a point that uh, something we've talked about in the past regarding the lack of playoff experience. And obviously guys like Reddick and Bellinelli have plenty of it. But at the same time, um, you know, some of the key players have no experience in the playoffs. How do you think they've responded so far? I think on the surface, you can see that they've responded pretty well, that they are certainly confident, maybe even arrogant uh, in some ways. Um, they, they certainly feel comfortable on the floor. So how do you, as a fan, somebody who has seen them on a number of occasions, how do you rate how they've been able to adjust to the intensity of the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, honestly, they've defied all expectations throughout the season, and that's pretty much carried over to the playoffs. I mean, as you guys said, Simmons is averaging almost a triple-double in his first two playoff games, which is just, it's surreal, honestly. It's um, ridiculous. Yeah, and J.J. Redick said that after game one. He's just like, I I had never seen, you know, Ben Simmons is pretty quiet and reserved overall, I guess, around his teammates. But he said, like, he was really fired up before the game. He was imploring me uh, things that I could focus on, and it just seemed like he was really locked in. And then after game one, he gave quotes basically saying, like, you know, I'm not riding too high. It's just on to game two. So I think the maturity, you know, a big storyline throughout the Sixers over the last couple of years was their lack of veteran leadership. I assume the likes of Redick and Amir Johnson are really imparting those lessons on the young guys. And it's, it's paid dividends, I think. So you mentioned some of the adjustments that the Sixers can make. Obviously it does feel like the six, the Sixers fans are optimistic even after that game two loss. Heading into Game 3 in Miami, do you foresee any other adjustments? You mentioned maybe trying to get to the paint a little bit more. Um, anything else maybe to sort of relieve the pressure on Ben Simmons? I'm thinking that they might start bringing guys up and start possibly setting screens for Ben Simmons a little bit, even, even you know, almost like a high pick and roll, but not in order to try to get him going downhill or, or at the very least just to loosen up the pressure that James Johnson and Justice Winslow and Richardson are doing when they're picking him up full court. But is there anything that you think that, that they're going to do? Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I could see a little bit more of getting him the ball in the post and having him operate from there. 
And then it really comes down to the physicality, I think. I, I really think, you know, the second game was all these young guys' first real taste of, like, this is how it how it amps up and how it's going to continue amping up every game from this point forward. So it might just come down to execution and setting harder screens and coming off of cuts harder and, you know, understanding that you're not going to have a bunch of wide open shots. Like you need to hit contested shots. I mean, they shot very poorly on wide open ones. Derek Bodner of the athletic shared that stat earlier. I think it was like somewhere in the low thirties on completely uncontested shots. So yes, they need to hit those better, but uh, just in general, I think now they're prepared for that type of pressure and Brett Brown's going to have three days to come up with counters for it. It sounds like Joel Embiid, they've listed him as doubtful, so I'm not expecting him to play. I would assume Ersan Ilyasova remains in the starting lineup just because of the matchup issues he creates for Hassan Whiteside. Um, But I I don't know. I I think it's going to come down to in-game adjustments too. I mean, we've seen Brown each of the past two games now. He switches starting lineup after halftime, going from Johnson to Ilyasova in game one and then doing the reverse starting Ilyasova and going to Johnson in game two. So... He has shown no reluctance to change things up if something isn't working um, as well as it should. And like same with Markel Fultz. We saw more of him in game one than we did in game two. He played five minutes, I believe, and he really seemed to be one who was flustered by the intensity of Miami. So again, now that he has a taste of that, maybe we see a little bit more of him. But, you know, TJ McConnell got a lot more burn than he did in game two. So I'm interested to see... Brown's rotations as much as his overall strategy. I I don't think they're going to like completely overhaul their offense in a three game or a three day stretch, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of his rotations. I'm glad you brought up Embiid because I think going into the series, obviously that was the juiciest storyline, the matchup between him and Hassan Whiteside. Unfortunately, you know, he's for you, at least and for Philly, he's been out the first two games, likely to miss game three. Um, Although there's still a chance that he could come back. Right. I mean, they're, they're, still going through the the protocols and I guess they'll reassess him uh, on game day. So there's still a possibility that he'll come back. And if not on game three, more than likely in game four, I think the big question is how do you see his return impacting the series? Because Wes and I have both talked about the fact that maybe his return might benefit Miami because it does slow the pace down a little bit, having him there requiring him to get a number of touches um, and slowing things down to, to fit what Miami likes to do best. How do you see that uh, his return, whenever it takes place, impacting the series? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because Brown, during his uh, meeting with reporters today, they asked him how Embiid's conditioning was. And in not so many words, he basically sure. said not up to what it was before he went down. So <laughs> that that's mildly concerning for whenever he does come back. Like I'm not convinced that we see him for 38 minutes that first game. Um, I think it, I mean, it gives the Sixers a offensively, it gives them more options just in terms of you can play slow, pound it down to him. And they said that after game two, they said like that second quarter where they just couldn't hit anything. That's where you really missed a Joel Embiid where you could just throw it down to him a couple times and have him make something happen either draw a foul or get an easy bucket around the rim. So I think they're not going to go away from this, the Simmons plus four shooter lineup completely. Whenever Embiid sits, I'd expect them to go to that almost exclusively. 
Um, but I think that will give them some more versatility in terms of ways they can score if they do go into these long droughts and kind of stave off yeah. such, you know, the, I think the heat went on like a 20 to two run in that second quarter, which is just an absolute backbreaker is the same thing in game one with the Sixers. They went on that huge run in the third quarter and, you know, the Sixers fought back, but they, they just couldn't quite get it done in game two. So I think offensively will provide a lift, but defensively honestly is the much bigger priority at this point because you know the Sixers defense has played as well as it could be reasonably expected without their star center the guy who's probably going to finish second or third in defensive player of the year voting this year but he will provide an enormous lift I believe they're something like 12 points per 100 possessions better defensively with him on the court against the heat this year than than they are off the court so yeah, I mean, it's, I'm the only mild concern is does that get Whiteside back involved into the series, and does he like mentally lock in because he gets so mad about Joel Embiid's trolling that you know he does seem to get fired up and play well whenever Embiid's there. Uh, but I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. You know, it's a seven game series. It, it, it could be a seven game series the way things are shaping up right now. Every game's been relative. Well. I shouldn't say every game. The first game was a blowout, but the second game was relatively <laughs> close. And I think that, you know, given that the, the Sixers shot 60-plus percent from three-point range I, in the in game one, I would assume that these games are going to be close going forward. Um, and if it is a seven-game series, a guy like Joel Embiid, who can dominate an entire game by himself, could be he, – he could swing the series, right? He's, like, he's capable of winning one game by himself, just like Dwayne Wade won game two by himself almost. Mm-hmm. And like Marco Bellinelli won game one by himself. So, um, look, he's Brian Saporic. He's a contributor for V-Ball Breakdown, fan side, co-host of the NBA pod. Make sure you follow his writing and his podcasting as well as his Twitter account. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I would wish you guys good luck, but you know I don't mean it. <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, the strange saga of Kawhi Leonard continues, and it could present an opportunity for the Heat to get its superstar. We'll tell you how they could do it when we come back after this break. Before we move on with the show, we want to take a quick break and tell you about our Patreon page. You can find it by going to patreon.com slash lockedonheat. And we are humbly asking for people to commit to a monthly pledge to help us continue to improve the quality of the show. Thanks to you who have already supported the podcast, we have quickly reached our initial funding goal that allowed us to purchase software that improved the quality of the podcast. But we aren't just stopping there. We've added a new tier of supporters. For $5 a month, you'll get access to a bunch of goodies, including salary cap and depth chart projections, free agency player rankings by position, a running list of our favorite trade ideas, and whatever else we can think of. Just go to patreon.com slash lockedonheat to get started. Again, that's patreon.com slash lockedonheat. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lockedonheat. The drama in San Antonio continues, and not playoff drama, David, but the drama with Kawhi Leonard. He hasn't been with the team during the series against the Warriors, and apparently he takes weeks to reply to texts from teammates. You don't take weeks to reply to my texts. No, that's unpardonable. That's a, that's a sin in today's world, Wes. You know that I take that stuff very, very seriously. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, it's kind of funny that now we're we're hitting uh, uh, the point where we're trying to measure how much time goes between um, emojis uh, between him and Manu Ginobili or whoever. But uh, these are the sort of things that get re- that start getting reported when superstars are on the move. I mean, we, we've, we've lived through the LeBron James stuff, right? We're tracking planes on the internet and Google Maps and whatever. Um, and now we're, I guess we're trying to figure out what kind of text messages Kawhi Leonard is sending and when and when he's replying to him. But 
these are the kind of situations that Pat Riley, historically at least, likes to pounce on. So do you think Kawhi would be a good fit in Miami? Well, let me go back to, to the whole situation because I think a lot of it is magnified, but at the same time exacerbated by San Antonio's policing, monitoring of the media. I think a lot of the issue is a lack of communication or a misunderstanding. Like as we're getting national pundits like you know Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN saying that there's obvious tension in the Spurs locker room, we're hearing from Spurs beat reporters that it was a nice conversation in the locker room, that it wasn't necessarily one of antagonism, but rather of just clearing the air. And Kawhi might just be a person who who's not really willing to do so. Like maybe he's just not comfortable being uh, communicating and keeping people in the loop. And that's, you know, that could be a little bit of a problem from that perspective that you think that as a teammate, as a centerpiece of the team and somebody who's missed most of the year, you'd want him to be more communicative. But at the same time, it just sounds like he's rehabbing and wants to be back at 100%. And the Spurs would love him to kind of push through that injury a little bit more than he's willing to do at this point. So that's the situation in a sort of nutshell. As far as his fit in Miami, I mean, how could you, how could he not fit well in Miami? He seems like somebody Taylor made. Um, I, I've talked about this before. A guy like Jimmy Butler seems like he's perfect for Miami and their work ethic here. Um, but at the same time, Kawhi is very similar to that. He's, he's built himself up. He's got this incredible talent and, 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 and physicality, but he's also worked very hard to become a, a great superstar player. Uh, he's plays defense at a high level. His scoring has improved in each of his you know few seasons in the league. Um, and he's the kind of guy that you can build around. Now, where we have questions about whether or not he can be the centerpiece of a team because this was the season for him to prove that he was that guy. I mean, he did it to some extent last year, but he had to share the floor with LaMarcus a little bit, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, that is, and, and you know, of course, Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili and, and their cast of characters. This was the year where it was really an opportunity for him to break out and be that superstar. Didn't work out that way. And LaMarcus has kind of taken that mantle a little bit in San Antonio. But I think he can be that kind of player in Miami. So he absolutely would be a great fit here. I think there are some concerns, obviously, over the quad injury and whatever else has been bothering him. Um, he didn't look great in those nine games that he did play for San Antonio this season. But again, those, he was basically between injuries. Um, you know, this is a guy who's never played more than 74 games in a season. He or really has only played more than 70 games twice in his entire right. career. Uh, so there is a little bit of injury issues. But then there, you also have to consider what the Spurs do with their resting program is is pretty aggressive, you know, you could say. And then given Miami's track record of getting guys healthy, I wouldn't worry so much about that. And look, if he was fully healthy, none of this would be an issue anyway. He wouldn't even be on the table as a rumored trade target. So well, I'm with you. If he if he's available, I think Riley's got to go after him. The one thing that does bother me a little bit is just you're seeing some subtweeting by other NBA players, real-life subtweeting um, around the league. I mean, you've got... Boston's guys saying, talking about how nice it is to have Kyrie Irving around, despite Kyrie being injured. You've got the Toronto Raptors guys saying, uh, think, or Kyle Lowry asking if he could leave, which is kind of an allusion to an old uh, Kawhi interview uh, during a post-game interview. I, I, I don't know if this is just sort of, you know, the NBA Twitter sphere sort of, you know, mucking things up a little bit more than. No, I think it's real. I think it is. I think it, I think there's there's a whole sub level to the NBA world that even you and I, as plugged in as we might be, aren't aware of. Like even the most plugged in beat reporter sees things and doesn't see this. Like the players have a brotherhood that they refer to on a number of occasions, 
And I think they're fully aware of when a player loses confidence or whether, you know, whether there's actual smoke in a situation that leads to some eventual fire. And I think that's what this is. Like Dwayne Wade, our own Dwayne Wade said that he thinks that the relationship between the Spurs and Kawhi is irreparable and expects him to be traded somewhere. So maybe that's just him putting something out there in the news. But I think there's also enough awareness and understanding of the complexity of the situation. These guys talk. And I think that's something that we always tend to ignore. Like as much as we kind of make a, a, a too big a deal, perhaps, of heat culture and everything else. I think around the league, there is a reputation there that's fostered by the players, them talking to one another during those off moments during the off season, um, where they reveal, you know, whether or not Spolster is the kind of guy that you want to play for, whether or not the heat culture is all that, well, et cetera. And then, and then given yeah. that, right? I mean, the, one of the reasons you attract a superstar is not only to elevate your own talent and 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 your own ceiling. But it's to get other guys to come play with you. And if if Kawhi has a negative reputation in the league, do you necessarily want to start? Tr- if you, do you want to trade the farm basically to get him, knowing that other guys might not necessarily want to play for him, or do you do you do it? If you're the Heat, at least, do you do it anyway? Just take the risk, take the chance, and say hopefully we can help repair this guy's reputation in Miami. I think so. I think because a lot of that. I think they assume will be uh, covered up or eliminated if you continue to win. And I would imagine that any move to acquire Kawhi, uh, at least in Pat Riley's thinking, would be because he believes that this team could be a potential winner. So maybe it's one of several moves. Maybe it requires trading a guy like uh, Hassan Whiteside. Or maybe he thinks that this could be a really strong defensive unit with Kawhi Leonard and okay. Hassan Whiteside. You know? I'm glad so. you bring this up. So here's my here's my master move. If I'm... If I'm Pat Riley and Andy Ellisberg, here's what I'm doing. You ready? Mm, yes. I move, I move Justice Winslow, Winslow and Josh Richardson for Kawhi Leonard, and it pains me. I hate it, and I hate myself for doing it. I can't look myself in the mirror for at least 365 days, but you got to do it. And that's what it, I think that's the sort of package it would take to get Kawhi Leonard. And, and honestly, if you're the Spurs, you're not getting the value, obviously, for Kawhi. Right. But, but if you're Miami, you're, you know, you're basically selling low on two guys who, at least you and I think, have a much higher ceiling yet to reach and, and, the, and one that they will both reach. And they could probably, like watching Justice Winslow and Josh Richardson hit that ceiling in San Antonio will suck because you know that they will. Oh, but, absolutely. Um, but that's the sort of package anyway that it would take to get. So you do it, right? If you're Miami, you do it. You, so you trade Winslow and Richardson again for Kawhi Leonard. So you bring him in. He's your starting small forward. Then I'm trading Whiteside to Sacramento. Like I said in the at the top, I'm trading him for Garrett Temple, my new starting shooting guard, a three and D kind of guy. He could pick up the second, um, the second uh, toughest opponent on offense, and uh, he can hit some open threes for you. Maybe you're play that Danny Green Dion, type role. You're forgetting hmm? about Dion. Dion comes off the bench. Oh, good luck yeah. with all that. Hey, I've got Kawhi now. So uh, this is what it takes for winning basketball to happen. If Dion doesn't like it, trade him to Sacramento too. Um, so now you've got Garrett Temple as your starting shooting guard, who I like a lot. And then you bring in uh, – so and the other part of the deal is Justin Jackson. He's your backup small forward. Um, provides some shooting on that second unit, a nice young player to set, set, sort of uh, replace Winslow he'll be, he'll be great in as far Falls. as young players go. He'll, he'll be, be great. great in, he'll look great in Sioux Falls. Um, and then uh, Costa Kufos as well. you got to put him in there for cap uh, matching purposes. And then uh, – but – then Kelly Olynyk and Bam Adebayo are starting front court, so you have a starting five of Dragic, Temple, Kawhi, Olynyk, and Bam Adebayo. That's what I do. 
Yeah, that it's that is a starting lineup. I mean, <laughs> with Dion Waiters, Tyler Johnson, um, and James Johnson coming off the bench. Run the the starting lineup again for me. I'm sorry. Olympic it's it's Dragic. It's Dragic. Temple. Temple. Leonard. Kawhi. Um, Olenek and Bam. Okay. And then, because with the Olenek Bam front court works, I don't, it's a I nice don't, front court. I don't like it though. I, I really still don't. Why? I, I just don't know. I mean, the numbers bear out that it's successful, but I think it's in unique situations, and I don't know that it necessarily works. I don't like Olenek at the four. I know maybe defensively they'll switch off every once in a while, but it, okay. it seems like it's a problem for me. Maybe I just haven't been able to wrap my mind around it. Maybe I have to do a little work in the offseason and see how well that that, that uh, situation played out. But what would you prefer, Dragic, Waiters, Kawhi, James Johnson, Olenek? That would be a hell of a defensive lineup, to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. And I like, I actually, I like Bam starting in that sense. I think he can start at center and then have Olenek continue to come off the bench for added uh, offensive power. I mean, imagine that those Dion. Dion handoffs with Olenek, that would be pretty good. Tyler Johnson coming off the bench as well. I mean, that, that would be some now pretty you're good. You're talking about Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard's a little – they have to move to an isolation offense with Kawhi. Oh, that is true. Yeah, I mean, you know, this Wolster can do it. And obviously, he's had experience coaching LeBron James. I think he'd be comfortable coaching a guy like Kawhi. So, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, look, on a lot of levels, it makes sense. Um, I think we're – I think we're starting to see a lot of news, more so than ever, I, I, between you and me. I think like a lot of teams now in the playoffs, we're starting to see their flaws magnified, and we're starting to hear a lot of scuttlebutt about potential moves. Like in Washington, a team that I mentioned earlier, I mean, yeah. look at John Wall and his struggles there. I mean, um, do they blow up I that trade for that contract? I would not trade for that John Wall deal. Yeah, it's not starting to look particularly well, would right? You, would you trade – would you trade for if you had to pick, right? And let's say it was the same value going out, Kemba Walker or John Wall? Ooh, Kemba. Uh, Drew Holiday or John Wall? Oh, you know, I, I like I liked Holiday's performance in the playoffs. And you I'll plug this. You wrote a great piece about it earlier, and I think everybody should definitely go oh, check nice. that out. But at the same time. I, I'm just not sold that he's ever going to be that great all the time. Like, I, he's been good in the second half of the season after Boogie went down, but there have been too many years there have been consistent. Now, whether or not you can say that's due to injury, he had some issues off the court as well with his wife, and, and those are perfectly understandable. Yeah, yeah. So, at the same time, I, I don't know if he's just reaching his ceiling now. He's, that's possible. And he's not tradable. Yeah, no, his contract is disastrous. They're, they're not moving him. And I think Pel- the Pelicans are happy with him anyway. Um, Terry Rozier or John Wall? <laughs> we'll, end, we'll end on that one. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. No, no comment. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's all we have for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a recap of tonight's game three against the Sixers. You can send mailback questions and ask about advertising on the show by sending an email to LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. Tweet your questions and comments for our recaps using the hashtag AskLOHeat and support and support the show by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lockdownheat. If you are, are if you already are a Patreon supporter, make sure you message us with your questions for our Patreon mailbag Monday. Music is courtesy of Mojave Wild. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining me, David. You got it, Wes.